0: This is going to surprise many of you greatly, but I've been spending a decent chunk of my time the past week reading N.T. Wright. I know, I know. I'll pause for a second for you all to recover from the shock. For those of you who haven't heard me talk about N.T. Wright before, welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad you joined us for the very first time. (laughs) I'm kidding, of course. I don't talk about my favorite New Testament scholar every sermon. Not quite, at least. Anyway, I have been preparing for an upcoming series on the book of Romans by finally making my way through Wright's massive book on Paul that my loving in-laws gave me as a present like nine years ago now, and I made it through the first 800 pages of it then, which has only left another... 700 or so pages for me still to read. (laughs) We'll talk a lot more about this when we get to Romans this summer. For now, though, this week I came across a point he was making about Paul's goals in writing his letters to the churches in the first century that I'd never really heard put in this way, and which sets the stage really nicely for where we're going in the book of Deuteronomy today. Contrary to how many people read the letters of Paul— N.T. Wright argues that Paul is not primarily trying to set out systematic theology statements or to lay out rules for Christians to follow, but instead is trying to equip Christians to think for themselves about how to live as followers of Jesus, to give them the ability to work out for themselves how to live out the salvation and grace that Jesus offers. The goal is not for the churches to do what Paul says, Because then they would be dependent on Paul always being there to tell them what to do. The goal is for them to so internalize the reality of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection that they would be able to think through the unique situations in which they find themselves in Rome or Ephesus or Jerusalem, and then live in a way that reflects that reality to their unique context. And this struck me because it is so very much like what we've been arguing should be our approach to Deuteronomy. As Meredith put it last time, we shouldn't be looking to Deuteronomy for rules we can follow today about how sexual relationships ought to function in our incredibly different cultural context. We should, however, be looking at the direction Deuteronomy is pointing, and which the rest of the Bible is pointing, and to use that to think through how we could also point that direction in our sexual relationships today. Today, though, we're looking at what Deuteronomy has to say about power and economic relationships. And the same basic idea applies. It would be silly to look to a book like Deuteronomy for rules that we should directly apply to our economic lives today when it was written to a homogenous, theocratic, tribal, ancient society whose economy is based in almost entirely on family farms and ranches. Transactions happened almost universally within a village a tribal context. International trade was only for the luxuriest of luxury goods. There was virtually no such thing as a corporation, etc., etc. Our economy is vastly more complex, almost infinitely more varied. It bears very little resemblance to the economy in which Deuteronomy is laying out rules." So those rules aren't going to directly apply to the questions we have about money today. But it would equally miss the point to say, well, these rules don't make any sense in my context, so I guess I'll take my money cues from Jim Cramer or Jack Dorsey or something. Deuteronomy doesn't offer us rules to follow, but it does offer us the chance to be equipped to think through our economic lives and relationships in light of who God is the God we are supposed to reflect to the world around us. So what we look to in Deuteronomy, as we consider what it says about economics and power, are the values that ought to guide us as we confront the infinitely more complex economic decisions that face us day to day in the 21st century. In these passages from Deuteronomy, we are going to ask, what does this passage encourage us to value in our economic relationships with whatever economic power we might have? First, Deuteronomy requires us to value equity over empire. <laughs> That's right, we're doing alliteration today. Oh yeah, equity over empire. Deuteronomy nineteen fourteen plops down in the middle of a string of rules about what to do about accidental deaths and false witnesses. There's this one single standalone verse in the middle of all that that says this, you shall not push back your fellow man's boundary marker that your predecessors marked out on your estate that you will inherit in the land which Yahweh your God is about to give you. It's the sort of rule that can easily just get passed right over and not really reflected on much. But it's one instance of a recurring theme in the Old Testament, a fundamental way things ought to be in Israel that is quite the opposite of how things usually go in economic matters. In the Old Testament, there is a fundamental right of each family in the nation of Israel to have their own land. In the economic context of the day, this is their means of production, their way to support a family and make a living and earn money. And every family should have it as an inviolable right. In Leviticus, you see in chapters 25 to 27, rules around this idea of a jubilee year that would happen every 50 years and in which the land holdings would revert to their original owners. So that even if, through bad luck, bad choices, or whatever reason a family lost their land. The next generation would get it back, restoring the family's ability to experience the life and abundance of God's promised land. This moving a boundary marker law is in that same vein because it isn't the poor or powerless who move a boundary marker to try and expand what belongs to them. It's the powerful who think they can get away with it. Moving a boundary marker is emblematic of the way wealth usually works, where it is used to get more wealth and then more, to build, in other words, an empire, an empire that promises, like all idols do, to protect and provide for me. Deuteronomy and the rest of the Old Testament, however, show us an expectation that equity should be valued over empire. Each family having the same ability to live and enjoy God's abundance. Not some who accumulate huge estates while the rest have to, at best, work on those estates and the produce goes to the wealthy landowner. I mean, this is mostly a a back then problem. We certainly don't have the same dynamics of extreme economic inequality today. (laughs) But the Old Testament takes this idea really seriously. Listen to this from Hosea 5.10. This is written hundreds of years after these laws were first set down and then were ignored for the most part. But Hosea says this, Judah's leaders are like those who move boundary stones. I will pour out my wrath on them like a flood of water. Moving a boundary stone, undoing the equitable distribution of land for the sake of increasing your own empire, and note that it is Judah's leaders, the powerful, who are accused of this, that is met by a flood of God's wrath because God's justice demands that God's people value equity over empire. Second, the people of God should value person over profit. This is from Deuteronomy chapter four, verses six and seven, speaking first about the collateral that a lender might take from a lendee. And then in the second verse about an even shadier way of making money, it says this, one may not take as collateral a handmill or an upper millstone. These would be the way that a household would grind its flour to make bread. And most households in that time had their own mini mill for doing that that work. One may not take as collateral a hand mill or an upper millstone, for one would be taking as collateral a life. Should a man be found stealing a living person of his brothers of the Israelites and garner profit from him and sell him, that thief shall die and you shall root out the evil from your midst. The first verse says that by taking the means of making bread as collateral for a loan, you are taking a life, as this translation put it. And then in the second verse, the person who sells someone into slavery is stealing a living person. These are both the same Hebrew word, the word nefesh, which is sometimes translated soul in other places, but That's kind of a misleading translation because in ancient Israel, there wasn't an idea of a separate soul from the body that comes from Greek philosophy quite a bit after the time that this was originally written. The word nefesh means the whole life of a person, the abstract idea of their personhood as a whole, taking the means to make bread, selling someone into slavery. These are ways of making money that put money over life, that put profit over person. The penalty for selling an Israelite into slavery, interestingly, is the only instance of theft being punished by death in any of the Old Testament laws, in contrast to many other law systems from the ancient world where this was a much more common punishment. In general, Israel was far less eager to demand the death penalty than their neighbors, which is a topic for another day. But this just underscores here the seriousness of this offense. You have stolen a life, so you must pay with a life. Economic history, of course, is littered with those with power pursuing profits, with utter disregard and even contempt for the lives they are destroying in the process. But the people of God are to value the nefesh over money, the person over profit. Third, the people of God value dignity over demand. This comes a few verses later in chapter 24, verses 10 through 13. Should you make a loan of anything... To your fellow man, you shall not come into his house to take his collateral. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you have made the loan shall bring out the collateral to you outside. And if he is a poor man, you shall not lie down in his collateral. This is picturing an outer cloak, which doubled as a blanket, as the collateral for the loan here. You shall not lie down in his collateral. You shall surely give the collateral back to him as the sun sets, that he may lie down in his cloak and bless you and it be a merit for you before Yahweh your God. I find this to be a remarkable touch. The idea that the lender has no right to violate the personal space of the lendee. It seems to me like some of the ways the poor are treated in our society are almost designed to humiliate, whether because the rich just feel like they can or they don't even notice, or out of some misguided notion that if we make this embarrassing enough, the poor will, I don't know, take better care of themselves or something. But these verses rule this out. You are not higher than or better than your brother who needs a loan. You can stand your ass outside and wait for him just like you would for an equal because that's who he is, an equal. And similarly, the command to return the cloak is related to valuing person over profit like we talked about earlier. But it also reflects this idea that you have no right to reduce someone to shivering through the night just because you have the right to demand his cloak as collateral. Their dignity is more valuable than Your rights than your demands. One of the scholars I read speculated whether having to make two trips a day to collect and then return a cloak like this would make it such a time burden as to make it not worth it at all, and the result would be the lendee being able to keep their cloak entirely. Not sure if that's how it actually played out or not, but I thought it was an interesting thought. What is certainly here is the truth that the people of God are to value the dignity of one another over their own demands. And finally, The value that sort of undergirds this whole topic. The people of God should value mutuality over maximizing. The verses we were just reading in chapter 24 go on to say this in the next two verses, starting in verse 14. You shall not oppress a poor and needy hired worker from your brothers or from the foreigners who are in your land within your gates. In his day, you shall give his wages and the sun shall not set on him for he is poor and his heart counts on it so that he call not against you to Yahweh and there be an offense in you. Both Jeremiah, later in the Old Testament, and James in the New Testament have similar words to say against those who do not promptly pay their hired laborers. In those days, the day laborers would be those who did not have land of their own and so have to make a living in the far more precarious way of looking for work each morning. But you can imagine both the rich employer just not paying at all, what we might call the Donald Trump style, because they could get away with it. But you can also imagine the employer thinking, oh, I'm a little cash short right now because I'm using my wealth to invest in this or that way, but you know, I'm good for it. I'll pay you next week. And the poor or powerless just having to wait because what other option do they have? There are any number of instances when the maximizing of my own investments, the maximizing of my own wealth, the maximizing of my own profits clashes with the requirement that the people of God consider the mutuality that must exist when their God is, as the Bible consistently reminds us, a God who shows no partiality. Going back to chapter 23, there's one more little nugget about property rights, starting in verse 25. It says, should you come into your fellow man's vineyard... Now, in a society with far fewer roads, this was almost inevitable in many traveling situations that you would go through someone else's property to get where you wanted to go. So when you go into your fellow man's vineyard, you may eat grapes as much as you crave to your fill, but you shall not put them in your pouch. Should you come into your fellow man's standing grain, you may pluck tender ears with your hand, but you shall not wield the sickle on your fellow man's standing grain. Unlike the moving of boundary markers, which mes- meshes nicely with our own understanding of property rights, hey, get off my lawn. This one butts up a bit more uncomfortably because, hey, that's my field, my grapes, my grain. But Yahweh tells the people that a traveler cannot just get a snack from your field, they can eat their fill. Because once again, mutuality is to be valued over maximizing my harvest. And interestingly, This goes the other way, too, because the person getting the meal from your field cannot take advantage of you by taking some away for later. The mutuality goes both ways. The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann said of these verses that there's a balance of permit and limit where the owner is not grudging towards their neighbor, but neither does the neighbor exploit the owner's generosity. Mutuality demands that I not try to maximize my own harvest at the expense of my neighbor's hunger, but also demands that I not take advantage of my neighbor's generosity in order to maximize my free food. Today, the values of efficiency and maximizing profit have darn near reached God status. And so these verses serve as an important corrective for us. In the people of God, mutuality is valued over maximizing. Efficiency is great. Profit is necessary for most businesses, yes. But as Christians, they cannot be pursued without also considering the impact on one another with mutuality, always winning out over maximizing equity over empire, person over profit, dignity over demand, mutuality over maximizing. These are not rules we can apply simply and easily, but those sorts of rules aren't all that helpful when new situations arise. What we have here are values that can equip us to think like the people of God, whatever economic situation might arise. When a choice of what to buy and from whom, or how to use financial resources that we have been given, how to conduct business or whatever other economic situation arises, we can use these values to think things through. How can I, in this choice, value equity over building an empire for myself? Value the person who is impacted over my own profit. Value the dignity of the other over my demands. Value mutuality over maximizing. How can I use my economic power, even if it's just a little bit of power, to reflect the goodness and justice of our God into the world?